You're listening to Unjiggered, a bartender podcast where we interview highly successful bartenders about their careers, lives, and the passion of bartending. Due to the sudden and sad news of MASH London closing its doors recently, we thought to bring you our conversation with Andre Pospihal, who is a former head bartender and is currently working with Proof & Co. Mikkeli and Andre chatted about how languages are key to the hospitality world, as well as Andre's love of Japan. With this podcast, we want to peel back the mask and discover just how the greats really became the greats. So sit back and enjoy. My name is Andre. The surname is a Czech surname. It's Pospichal. So for many people, it sounds like a popsicle. I'm getting that from Peter Chua a lot from Singapore. So I'm from Czech Republic. I have been living there for 20 years and uh, I studied a hotel business school, then moved moved out and uh, um, I think the bartending kind of got me since the, the hotel business school. I, I can say that now, but I was 17, I was asked to open my first cocktail bar. And was, Age 17? I was 17, yeah, yeah, yeah. So my teacher basically came to me and she was like, hey, I know you're into that bartending because you do the competition for the school. Uh, and I was asked by a guy, he has a nightclub and he would like to do some cocktails. So would you help him out? And I said, yeah, it would be awesome. I created a menu. I was very lucky at the time I was in the US for a short trip and then I, I got really excited and I had made polo shirts with my name. I had a first kind of employee in my life. <laughs> it was my friend. So I printed the name of his and mine and our company was called Fresh and Good Drinks. <laughs> that was Fresh it. And good, like, so where did you open the bar exactly? We didn't open it. We didn't have to hold any license. It was in the nightclub, but we had like specialty cocktail bar. So I made 10 cocktails. My really good friend who is an architect now in Prague, he made a menu, like a layout and the design. I did the content and then we priced it. Yeah, we were selling every Friday, Saturday cocktail and we opened the bar, we closed out the bar, we count the money. So how many years ago was that? That is, uh, well, I'm, I'm 34 this year, so... That's a substantial amount of time ago. Yeah, That's six, crazy. 16, 16 years ago, yes. And I really like that, right? I like the hospitality and, you know, talking to people, really make them feel comfortable. I was not the guy who was dragged by the girls to be a bartender. I just like to create things and combine things. And yeah, that was the main thing what got me in. And it, it was a second grade in a high school. And we were asked to like, hey, if you're interested, go to this kind of a course, you know, it's internal every Tuesday after school, you can go there. And at the first session, it was like 11 of us. And then the, the amount just got reduced and reduced. And I was the only one who was going there. And I said, ah, I see, I like it. Like it's going somewhere. I had my first cocktail competition. I was second. So I was really lucky. I made a cocktail. My, my colleague, my, my, my friend, student helped me with the recipe. It was blueberry juice and it was a layered drink. Yeah, uh, because uh, that was the thing. That right? was the thing at the time, <laughs> yes. We had to use some awkward spirit. You might say Becherovka, but actually Becherovka is pretty good, I have to say. So I wish it would be Becherovka. It wasn't. It was like a local so. spirit. Now trending, local spirit, but not at the time. <laughs> no, at the time, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. When uh, we started bartending, the notion of a local spirit was far from the best thing yeah, you could exactly. get. It was literally the worst thing you could get because <laughs> exactly. it was the cheapest, right? Um, so yeah, I got really excited by that. And uh, and then it, and it took off, basically. Yes, so the choice was straightforward what I should do. But my father, he was very supportive in a way that he said, 
I don't care what you're gonna have from the maths. I care what you will bring home from the languages. He made like a market school. So I, I was learning German at first and then I started to learn English. And I liked it. I liked obviously English a bit more than German, even though I'm coming from the city which has been heavily under the German control during the occupation and so on, long history. But uh, I learned German first and then English. And uh, he really cared how many languages I speak and how well I speak, which obviously is still far away from fluent. But I think for foreigners, you know, <laughs> all for all n- native English speakers, forgive us. But we do our, our best. We try our best. No, but I think that languages is such a underrated subject when you're at school. But ultimately, it's really the key of the world. I mean, what we do, especially hospitality, without languages is impossible, right? Yeah, com- I completely agree. I mean, it opens so many doors. I keep telling, like, uh, for the last couple of years, I've been trained many foreigners like me, right, whose first language is not English. And I just told them, like, look, you have a certain amount of information in your own language. And once you learn English, the amount of information which opens is just unbearable. It is fascinating. Yeah, it's unbelievable. Yeah. But even, like, the amount of content you find online and tutorials and, like, all Endless. Stuff is in English, English. Everything is in English. You need to speak English. It's the first thing what you need to do in hospitality, just to learn English and speak the language. So we are here in Bangkok. You obviously came a long way from the blueberry guy. Uh, let's call you like that. <laughs> what were uh, the steps that brought you forward? I mean, at some point we're talking about you managing this bar at the age of 17 with your friend, but was very amateur. I'm, I'm there to assume, right? Uh, it was a nightclub, first yeah. of all, let's mention it. Uh, we didn't do any flair, but I think for at that time we we did quite nice setup. We we are talking about a time for the people who listen are maybe younger. At that time, it was still hard to find like a proper mixing glass, okay, with a spout. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. there <laughs> yeah. you go. Yeah, so, no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah OSNE, like the equipment you had was very limited. Uh, products were, the, the source was limited. The fresh juices at that time were not definitely in check yet. No. It was from the Tetra Packs. No, mm. but I remember my very first bar. We used to have a recipe for uh, sweet and sour mix, which was a liter of water, a liter of uh, lemon juice, and then was one sachet of this like powder thing. It was a five-star hotel. And we, had, we had sweet and sour mix. Wow. Shelf life a week. You know, nowadays it's disgusting, but back in the days that was the thing, right? That's true. It's interesting. I love to talk to old, old people. And I, if I mention names, please don't take me literally. I don't think you're old, but just wiser. You know, when you're in London, where we met, you speak with people like Jake Berger and pe- people who really started bartending and build a scene f- for us to come, actually. They, they worked in a really crazy bars and working with the products. Like the other day, we were talking, right? And you speak with people in a in a Dorchester, and you ask, like, what was popular in nineteen seventies? Uh, mint. I mean, like a fresh mint. No, mint liqueur was popular. That was that thing. So moment, so mint was mint liqueur was popular. Did you know mojito? Yeah, we, we knew the recipe. How many you sold like a week? Five, maybe. Yeah, <laughs> Five mojitos so a week. Or something like. <laughs> So what was your next step after that? Yeah, I, I guess you graduated after. Yeah, that. I graduated luckily, happily, and um, I was like, "Hey, so shall I continue or what shall I do?" So I took a course for one year for English, a more intense course, and uh, meanwhile I self-employed myself as a financial advisor. Believe it or not, I jumped into finance. It was very exciting. It was it was a German company. 
uh, we're selling a lot of products. It was one-on-one. -on -one, and I, I think I had it from the hospitality school. I was really eager to help people. I was 20, okay? So I definitely didn't have that experience of a finance. Oh. It was like very... I put a lot on my shoulders to, to manage someone else's money. I think it, it gave me a lot of stress. But I learned a lot. And the hospitality kind of was the driving force to, to do this job because I really had that mind to help them to find the best product for them and their needs. So it was the drive. I did it for a year. And then I fell in love with the girl on, on that school. And she said like, hey, you know, my dad uh, has a job for me for three months in Ireland. Um, I said like, okay, I might come over. You know, I have a friend in a south part of, of Ireland. So I will come for a trip. So I bought a ticket fly ticket and then we broke up a few weeks oh. after or months after i had this ticket and that ticket to ireland started all i flew to dublin uh -huh. uh, obviously i haven't met her there and i went to south to city of cork and my student mate was there with his girlfriend and they had this kind of small room in a you know kind of irish english style of uh, a bit wonky, yeah. Yeah, like, you know, single glazed windows, <laughs> cold island has a summer for one week. <laughs> yeah. Um, everyone remembers. It's the most beautiful day of the year, summer mm -hmm. in Ireland. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, no, crazy. And, and then he said, like, hey, you can come here. You know, a lot of foreigners are coming here. There was a time, like, all the Spanish, French, uh, Italian, Eastern Europeans, Polish came because Ireland was the place, right? It was booming. We, we are talking about a 2004 four, five, six. Uh -huh. And uh, uh, it, it was great because I said, okay, you know what? Sure. I quit my job and I, I went. It was January 2005. Ah, so you went there during the warm season. Yeah. January. <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, <laughs> I was in by the worst. And I arrived and I was lucky I got a job in the best restaurant in the town. The town is a 300,000 people. Ah, so it's reasonably big. Uh, reasonably big. And uh, uh, as a bartender. So... The advantage of it was that I learned about wine at the time. I worked with the French people who really taught me wine. I tasted wine which I heard about only in the movies and I could taste them. You know, oh, very was wine not a thing? No, well, you, you don't try, you know, putting Montrachet oh, or you don't like... Wine, uh, wine. Yeah, you, yeah, don't, yeah. You, you don't try the yeah. wine. So at the time it was a great experience and, uh, you know, Chateau de Pape you hear in the movies, in the songs and finally you try that and you're a 20 years old kid. So, and uh, I stayed there for one year and then I moved to a small hotel which had a beautiful artificial waterfall, crazy French chef but very passionate and it was a small hotel and I was behind the bar again. Good for speed, I made Irish coffee like no one else, you know, uh, pint Guinness with a shamrock on top. Is Irish coffee popular in Ireland? Yes, it is. Yeah, uh, it's not ba a stereotypical thing. Oh yeah, it's yeah. Popular. It is. Yeah, it's Irish coffee, Calypso coffee, Bailey's coffee. Like, oh, it's yeah. a big thing. Okay. It is. Yeah. Um, yeah, and then I, I had opportunity. Some, some guy actually really believed in me to manage a place which was a wine bar and a coffee shop in the morning. It was a hard school, very, very hard for me because I had to manage a team, and I was like very young still to manage the team and customers as well. And I, I didn't do well. I admit that I didn't do well. But a great school. It taught me a lot. And after that, I want, I hang out with the Spanish people and I want to learn Spanish. 
So for me, what works the best is not not other books, but learn in environment. Mm-hmm. So I want to move to Spain. So I spoke with a couple of people, Spanish, obviously, where I should move. I didn't want to go to Barcelona. That's for sure. Because everyone would go. So I want to go somewhere else. And I met a girl as a friend and she told me, like, go to Malaga. It's by the sea. It's a nice weather. It's a south. You learn the proper Spanish. I was like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. I went and I paid for school. I paid for my so apartment. So you literally just moved uh, straight away. Yeah, yeah. I spent uh, two and a half years in Ireland and then I moved to Spain. Yeah. So how did you do? Like, you didn't have language, anything. How did you survive? Well, simple. Same, same as Ireland. Yeah, I just moved there. The school was in English and then I started to learn Spanish. International students, they speak English. They spoke English. And then I started to learn Spanish. Spanish was kind of good for me. I mean, the pronunciation for us as the Czechs is easy. Yeah, I went there and I learned. I kind of like, at that time I wanted to, I saw myself so much on the beach and flare. When I was sweaty, I just went to the sea, you know. I saw the picture and then I made it happen. I stayed in a, an apartment with other students and I started to work. I was still the hungry bartender. I wanted uh-huh. to learn the culture and as well the, the bar. So I started to work in a restaurant. <laughs> it was quite funny because <laughs> there I realized that my first language is not Czech anymore, but English. Not that many people in that restaurant spoke English. The bartender I was working with and the manager, that's it. The rest, just Spanish. So I had to explain in English, but it was not enough. I needed to speak Spanish. So <laughs> I remember I went in, in Spain, you have porra, which is a type of salad. And for the afternoon, you have the salad bar. Right? And I went to the girls, the woman in the kitchen, and I said, I necesito porro. And they start to laugh because porro is a joint. It's a spliff. <laughs> No time, full house, full house. And then I came, I need a split. (laughs) (laughs) And and I was working with old Spanish guys. They taught me how to cut the Spanish ham. Um, So I stayed there, but not enough proper cocktail bartending. I I kind of felt like I still am not doing the proper cocktails. And there, there was no other cocktail bar at that time. There was a cocktail bar one. And I went there, old guys, beautiful. Puerta Obscura was the name in Malaga. And, you know, I went there and nicely dressed, entered the bar and I ordered Manhattan. And he shook the Manhattan and I said, I have nothing to do here in this city. I'm not here to change people. I cannot do it. So I was looking for the way out. And uh, where shall I go? Well, London was the only place, the ultimate place where you learn cocktail. Um, I didn't know anyone in London. I know one, I knew a one guy, one friend, and he helped me with the accommodation at the beginning. Uh, and I moved to London. I had a backpack, big backpack though, but that was it. I think I had a thousand pounds. That's all. What, what year I had. was that? That is two thousand eight. The perfect time because that's just the beginning of the financial crisis. Which, if you work in hospitality, it's a fantastic time to go for a job. <laughs> anyway, so oh. you, you get to London two thousand and eight. Yeah, 2008, and and then uh, I was looking for a place, but at the time, what was working for me, what I did, I didn't know anyone, best cocktail bars in London, I googled, and that's that, that, that was my list, you know, Milk and Honey was there, so I printed the CVs, and I went from one place to another, first of all, great, I recommend to everyone, because it's more personal, you have that touch, feel, smell of the space, where you potentially might work, 
you meet people person to person so you know the manager is you know if if the chemicals are working between you two and you see the state of the bar as well right so i would definitely recommend that what job did you land eventually so i i was applying for a bartender's job i had this bartender's ego obviously that i'm a bartender right which means in london pretty much nothing but they offer me a job in lounge lover in a shortage by the shortage high street yeah okay yes and um, at that time, pumping place, like I remember nights when we did 10,000 pounds easily in a, a group of three, four bartenders with one barbeck. And I got a job as a barbeck there and I got into that world when it was busy. Everything free poor in front of your eyes. And that's how I started a proper bartending, actually. Um, you know, jiggers, they're, they're definitely not that place, no, no space. Yeah, I think if you build the menu correctly, free pouring can really make or break a business. Because if you're able to pump out drinks at the speed of light, you make a lot of money, you know? High volume places, reliable uh, bartenders, so they yeah, put the yeah. right measure. Why it shouldn't work? I don't know. I, mean, right, which... I think now we rely too much on a jigger. You see people pouring into the jigger and then they cut it before and then they have that extra... Dash. Yeah, well, that's that's a whole debate we can talk about. Yeah, uh, we can talk about it for ages. About artistic jiggering. True, 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 true. And yeah, so that was a great place. I started as a bar back then. I had a position as a bartender and had bartender over there. Uh, so I was managing the three bartenders. Uh, very busy, really machines. We were really, the dockets were dropping on the floor and we were picking them up. And I was just calling, make me five, nine mojitos, <laughs> make Three love letters, five love letters make me, you know, the name of the cocktails uh, you never forget. That's crazy. Like the feeling that you have when the, you look back at the printer and you see the dockets on the floor. It's like, OMG, man, how am I going to deal with this? It's right like now? it's Friday again. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, great guy, a bar manager at the time was from Albania. Uh-huh. Albanian bar manager. Uh-huh. Strong character. Didn't give a shit. Still nice to people, but, you know, like that kind of toughness he needed uh-huh. to show. And then... I was going around, obviously, catching up with the places people told me. And then I met a guy who, uh, who is a really good friend of mine until now. His name is Paul, Paul Tvaro. He owns a bar called Lunch Bohemia and a shortage for more than a decade now. He's more than a character, but very, very hospitable, very nice person. And he told me, hey, you know, there is this guy in, in the bar in a hotel near Oxford Circus called Art- uh, Artesian. They just reopened. Uh, David Collins did the uh, design. You should check it out. You know, I heard he's from Brno. Uh, it's a city in Czech. So I went. It was afternoon. And there was Aleš Kretina. And uh, we didn't know each other. So I spoke English, obviously. And then he's like, you're Czech. Oh, I'm Czech. So we spoke Czech. And that was the time when he had this rum bar. And he was like, uh, I want to build it like a rum bar over here, you know. And like a rum collection. and yeah, Which must have been one of the weirdest uh, phases of Artesian. It was a beginning, right? Really, yeah, when they reopened. Yeah. Yeah. It was like very themed bars, like we're going around. Like a whiskey bar, rum bar, and gin bar, you know, like graphics, you know, gin bar, very one of the biggest selections yeah, at yeah. the time. So I think that was the thing, yeah. I, don't, I think they had like a quite classic menu, didn't they? They had things like rum Manhattans and things. Yeah, like rum Manhattan. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They had the Mai Tai, like with the flaming uh, sugar cube, yeah. you know. So yeah they, yeah, they went that way. And again, it was all about uh, hospitality. I think all of us go to uh, went to Artisan and I'm sure they, they keep the legacy. You you were living with the amazing feeling yeah, about yeah. yourself. And you paid or you didn't pay... I don't know. I mean, 
I don't know if I can say it, but I haven't paid so many times. I, I feel so guilty. They weren't very good at uh, printing bills there, weren't they? <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I always left a hefty tip, but I was like, I cannot go to Artisan anymore. I cannot go there for another time. You are in a quite privileged position because Artisan Bar is probably one of the most relevant, if not the most relevant bar of the past decade. It's safe to say that, you know, of course there are other examples, but Artisan was the bar. It has been the bar recognized globally yeah you are in a privileged position because you did get to see alex at the very beginning of it and you did get to see alex at the very end of it and how do you think it changed during this period of time a lot of wrinkles yeah yeah a lot of wrinkles definitely <laughs> drenched out of Sorry, energy <laughs> uh, you know going for a trip where uh, he was by the wall and he just fall asleep uh, remember a few trips like that competitions shifts he told me once he follows me behind the bar just lean by the bar top it's just these guys they really I, I don't know these standards are that's crazy yeah um yeah amazing they really build it and i how it has changed hmm. his personality hasn't changed yeah always welcoming person he's uh i could say a good friend of mine but um, most importantly he's a great host and always has been a great host Direction in terms of the menu or like, it was the phase when Marian joined Artisan, when uh, when they worked together and uh, they really bounced the ideas of each other, like what to do. And, you know, Marian brought a lot of new ideas and he really started to use the toys, the anti-gradle. He, he was the first time behind the bar. And then it escalated where like a, it ended up with the microwave behind the five-star hotel bar, right? So definitely went crazy direction. And I think that was like a shift of as well, like a thinking. They pull up a couple of really cool, interesting serves and menus. And after Marianne left, Alex had his ideas of, hey, uh, let's do something else completely crazy. And then you could see the crazy videos when really like Simone joined and pull out like really crazy ideas. What and how they did it in a five-star environment, I really... No one, no, no one knows like, how they managed to do I guess they're the only ones who know that. Because a lot of the things they were doing, I'm sure they were bending rules left and right. I think only Alex can or maybe cannot, I don't know, say. But I don't know. But, you know, yeah. it's funny you say because like, I think they have single-handedly changed the way that people perceive the five-star luxury and the way that people like thought what uh, five-star luxury should stand for. Because they move it from like this stuffy and of course very elegant but like very unapproachable five-star element to this place where yes you still get the great, the same amazing glassware you still get the same amazing soft service you still get the best ingredients but formality take it down five million steps right make it very approachable completely yeah. they took the aspects of what makes this the street bar really great into the five-star environment and without that fuss right mm. that's for sure at that time, Connaught opened, right? Uh, reopened uh, again, the Connaught bar. And uh, they went the formal way, but elegant way. Uh, great service and, you know, here a couple of touch points. Uh, it's an instit- institution, the Connaught, you know. It's one of those places that, yeah. Again, like, it's still there, mm. standing strong, you know. They really carved their name in history, haven't they? Through that, but yeah. through the cocktail, I, I think it was a new episode for them as well. Uh, like the cocktail of the elevated the program Agostino and Eric who came as well right at, at the moment he was in a Knightsbridge I think working and I think you know or was he working in uh, 
in front of a dish. He was working at the purple bar or something like that. Do you remember this? True that. He was in a purple bar. Yeah. Yes. Sander- Sanderson Hotel. He was in a Sanderson Hotel. Hotel. Yes, yes, yes. You're right. He was in a Sanderson Hotel. I think they had like uh, this bar where they had Dom Perignon as house champagne or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, <laughs> yeah true, true. He was in Sanderson Hotel. And yeah, and then he joined a Conant with Agostino. So you're working for this bar. Uh, this was a long uh, detour we took. Uh, yeah, true. Yeah. Um, so yeah, working for that lounge lover and... And the Luca Corrieri, uh, the offer, why I started to talk about all the uh, Czech and Slovaks was because I met them there in, in London. And uh, they went to see me and, you know, naturally you, you stick with your kind. And uh, we went around here and there. And I was, that was the first time and probably last time I saw Eric without gelled hair. But uh, at that time it was the thing, right? He was there was even a award, uh, yeah, Jake, yeah, Jake yeah, Berger did an award, right? Yeah, the alternative award, alternative right? awards, yeah. the most gelled hair. And uh, so we hang out. They came, and then uh, the the word spread that there is this guy who wants to do like a proper bartending. Luca Cordieri saw that he offered me a job in Dorchester in Chinatown as a bartender, and I said, "Wow, a great experience!" So I will be working out of busy bar, uh, high volume into different style, which is a hotel style, hotel bar. And a uh, great experience, different environment, you know, uh, Cantonese cuisine. I learned a lot about the food um, and then Italian way of hospitality. Classic, beautiful, I still believe, probably the nicest design, so cozy. It's a beautiful, uh, beautiful cocktail bar. bar. Um, when they opened Sir David Tang, who passed away, unfortunately, last year, had this idea of like hiding place for celebrities and models. Uh-huh. And, so it really worked. And I stayed there for a year. And uh, I joined Covades for a reason. Again, there was a time when Zdenek took over after Paul Mant as a bar manager. And Covades is a members club in the middle of Soho in London for people who don't know. And uh, it's interesting because uh, there are a lot of film industry people at the time uh, they were joining the club, the members club. But not essentially the stars, but people who make movies. And then as well are musicians. Um, so artists, like uh, artists, full-on artists. Full-on yeah. artists, serious artists. But they must have been super interesting people. Huh? Yes, really, really good. And because it was a members club, we had that power and freedom. We were running the floor and the bar. There was no difference between the bartender and the waiter. And we had all freedom, sit down next to the guests on a couch and talk to them and ask them questions. And, you know, we never had a menu over there. So we really, we picked tailored. Um, we were classic cocktail bar. With a small twist here and there, but very classic. That was the idea of Paul Mount, and we kept this legacy. So we never jumped on the molecular kind of wave or anything. But the interaction, that hospitality, um, and the information you could ask the people again, you know, same like time, the same time like I moved to Ireland, and you could ask, hey, is the Louis Define really that popular? Or what is this pasta? How is it different? What's the difference between this and that? Yeah, it's like that in this region, you know, like th- mm-hmm. you could ask the people straight away from that country. It's on the spot. On They they know better than anyone else. And again, if I would not speak English, I would not ask. If I would not live abroad, it would be hard or I would gather way less information. Or I would need to read it, which is boring, right? You want to mm-hmm. hear it as a story. Yeah, exactly. So that was a great experience. We were running that with Zdenek, uh, the whole members club. Uh, difficult. Um but challenging, you know, we, we were on the reception, not letting people go in. And then they had way more money than we had and more influence. And we said, like, no, you cannot because this is members club. Um, very, very stressful. I remember one night 
all of a sudden we close the bar and then Barbeck comes like, Andre, Andre, calm down, calm down, quick, quick. What happened? Because it was in Soho, someone smashed our windows, which was uh, Vitrage window, and then had a full access to the restaurant, which we had to kind of protect. So we called police, they took him, but I end up with an empty window and I had to stay there. Had to pay, I think, 900 pounds for a single glazed window to be replaced so we can close the door and no one can go in. You know, like, again, I was fairly young and still deal with things like that. And then a lot of internal problems of like the members and paying bills and open bills and so on. So good school. So you work with Zdenek and Mimi both. That's correct. Zdenek, Mimi, Renault. Strong team, eh? Very strong team. Luca Misaglia. Oh, right. Yeah, he joined us after lab. It's like very, very strong team, very passionate team. The members club scene in London was quite amazing at the time. Eh? You know, it, it, it belongs to the, the British thing, right? You need to be part of some club. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Either no, it's no, a no, tennis yeah. club and so on. Yeah, so the yeah. members club of drinking culture, which is big in England, you jump on that. So at what stage do you develop? Because the way that I've always known you, was that you were this guy who was like so deep into Japan that you couldn't believe. So at what stage did you develop this strong Asian influence? Interesting enough, right? We're talking, uh, we are in Bangkok now. Yeah, we're in Bangkok <laughs> at the moment, yeah. It is, it is so true. Uh, I was 13. My mom traveled to Japan a couple of times. She brought uh, pictures. No, not on the phone, the real pictures. <laughs> uh, picture, which you had to develop. <laughs> um, and, and I saw the culture and I loved it. And she brought a lot of things with her, right? Like, uh, you know, door handles and like these awesomely like made things. And I love that. I like that elegance and that kind of quality of it. I didn't know about the Japanese culture, but I could feel that respect from the people and that humbleness. So I don't know why, but at the age of 13, I like, I start to like that. And uh, when I was in Spain, I, I met my ex-girlfriend. She was Japanese. She, she showed me over the time Japan truly from the perspective of family and uh, culture traditions way of thinking she shaped me definitely and i still had that love for bartending so when it become when stan vader and i brought it from the east into the west um the the japanese bartending this hard shake at that moment and then like george Niemek, eric and marianne went there as well and they shared it with me i said like well i have to go like asap so I saved my money and I I went. I stayed in her family. So again, I was not in a hotel and a tourist. I was like a bit deeper. And I visited the bars, you know, and I had these <laughs> inappropriate questions to the bartender about everything because I was so curious. <laughs> and then some moment she was at the bar because she was very kind. She went always with me to the bars. And uh, just stop saying hi. You all, too many times you say hi, hi. <laughs> no, that's not polite. <laughs> but... I was a foreigner, right? They yeah, they, they yeah. took it easy. And I, I loved it. I bought so much stuff from Japan at my first trip. I spent so much money there. Yeah, shakers, knives, uh, jiggers. Everything. And, 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 coasters, I, and so. it, I still with me. I Like, it's not just a knife for me. It's not a... Sp- it, it really means to me. So, like, you know, when you buy in Japan a knife, they take your name. And they engrave the knife with you. Yeah. They engrave the knife, but they keep the, your name with that number of the knife in their registry. Oh, really? So you are responsible because it's a weapon. So you're responsible for your knife. So okay. if the knife kills someone in Japanese, you are responsible for the knife. I didn't know that. So you better be careful when you buy yeah, a knife uh, in I'll, Japan. I won't stab someone. <laughs> <laughs> or if it gets stolen or you exactly, lend it to exactly, someone. Yeah, absolutely. 
Never lend your knives. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Still a weapon. So things like that, which takes time maybe to understand. I definitely don't understand all of it. But what I like about Japan is the mutual respect between the customer and the, uh, let's say, server. But in every aspect of the life, people really respect someone in 7-Eleven. They respect the garbage man. There is the casting is just less visible and it's more polite, at least on outside. Uh-huh. And I think in society it matters a lot. Maybe the only place when it's not polite is the last train in Tokyo. Okay. But <laughs> there is a reason. Yeah, and then I, I came across with many Japanese and uh, they're really nice people. It takes time to to become a friends with Japanese people. There is a responsibility for a friendship in Japan. You know, in America, you meet someone in a, in a shop, it's like, hey, how you doing? Yeah, good. Yeah, where are you from? Oh, yeah, I'm from that town. How are you staying? That chit-chat, which is, it seems like a lot, but means nothing, but it's just polite, okay? In Japan, it's not a chit-chat. It's just very slow approach. Once I believe once you are past that friendship zone, then you are responsible for that friendship. It's You cannot really easily get out of it. Uh, you have that kind of responsibility, I would oh, say. I yes, which maybe for us like Europeans, you might not see it straight away. So I remember my mom is sending still every year for a New Year's postcard to her friend. Every year sending because it's the way you should do, you know. So at what stage did you realize, okay, it's time for me to move on, leave London and, and, and jump on the next uh, adventure? Yeah, after after I opened MASH. Uh, MASH also was a big, big thing. You opened with Renault. Yes, opened with you Renault. you launched this amazing menu, have you? Yeah, we had this idea of the menu, which was like a guy traveling through US, sending postcards home. Then we were sending postcards to whoever wanted around the world, which was part of the menu. Uh, massive operation, 300-seater, steakhouse, five-station five island bar. So logistic of it. At that time, we had a crusher for bottles, for example. So we like, I would say now, be more sustainable. Uh, yeah. <laughs> right? It's a big trend at the moment. Yeah. yeah. And uh, these guys are coming. They came from Denmark. The whole mash came from Denmark. Uh, very determined, really amazing wine guys. So they wanted their way and they didn't really care if they are London or anywhere else. And it was good. It did well, at least as far as I am concerned, still doing well. And at that point, I was like, okay, what should I do next? I Asia has been my kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And at, at that time, Zdenek was already well, working for a proven company in Singapore. And uh, he said like, hey, you know, we might have a position. Let's talk about it. And I had a small guest shift tour, which uh, I did at Tokyo, the Singapore 28. I was in Trench in Tokyo and I was in Quinary in Hong Kong because of my friend Cherry Lam. Eric took a picture and I was like, who is this girl? And he, he was like, what is my friend Cherry? You should meet her. She's super cool, bubbly. And I said, okay. Well, we start to chat and she's like, you know, she's awesome. And she's like, hey, you should come to Hong Kong. I'm the best tour guide ever. And I plan to do a Dubai guest shift. And I said, you are? Okay, you know what? Let me cancel the Dubai and show me how good host you are. She is great host. Oh, there you go. Yeah. And at least she was a woman of her word. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> she she because she was really into bartending, and then she showed me the city. We are good friends, and uh, always I think hope will be uh, good friends. And uh, we basically saw Hong Kong, and uh, I had the guest shift in a Singapore after, and then Paul met me. He's the CEO of the Proven Company. And then we had a chat, and a couple of months after there was an offer. I think at the time we were talking about Singapore or Hong Kong. And 
I liked Hong Kong because it was more Asian. It had more vibe. Um, it had more culture aspect, which I like. It has a mountains and has a beach and it has like a lot of heritage. So I moved there. Yeah, I took the job as a spirit evangelist for a proven company. And I spent four years there. Yeah, working with a team, which was very small, but we, we did everything. We, we delivered goods and we did trainings and we did events. And it was like all over the place. But we had the drive of a small company which wanted to change things and be different. And uh, yeah, great, great experience. When you joined Hong Kong, how developed was uh, the market there? And how much uh, was proof involved there at the very beginning when you joined? I think we were at the very beginning, not very beginning, but we were beginning still... Beginning-ish, yeah. Be- be- beginning, yeah. It was our second market after Singapore. But Singapore was like beer and then like... 28 and other bars cocktail bars so that change in the world's perspective for the people like oh was a big difference but hong kong was already they had cocktail bars lillian bloom quinary you know they were making cocktails but in singapore it was like zero to 100 but hong kong was already on a good 30 okay, if i put okay. in that scale mm-hmm. so that's why people might have overlooked hong kong as a market because they haven't seen like a big boom of it. Mm-hmm. Because before Singapore in Asia Pack was Sydney for sure, right? Yeah, Sydney yeah, was course. like the thing where the things were happening. So joining Hong Kong was great. We roll out the same way how we roll out the S- Singapore, but Hong Kong was a little bit on a different train, on different wagon. I mean, the 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 mentality of the people was different, is different, and it's very price sensitive. So prices of cocktails, prices of spirits. And we came with something niche, unusual uh, when big brands were there. But, you know, craft spirits, which proved really excellence at, was at the beginning. But we had to educate the market a lot and uh, explain, like, what, what it really is. What made you think it was time for you to make a move from Hong Kong? I moved out of Hong Kong because I wanted to change the city. I, I've... I'm getting in the age when I want like a little bit slower pace of my life. Because uh-huh. Hong Kong is quite frenetic. It's, it is. It's a great city when you're 25. Awesome city when you're 25, when you go out, drink and, you know, you party. I just, uh, just in a stage when, when I decided like what to do next, like I want to call my lifestyle. Even though I like my job, I love my job. And I need to call myself a little bit, just mm. cut my hours. And uh, I want to learn new skill set, you know, discover, I think, my pedigree kind of says that moving from high volume bar into the hotel bar into the members club i think that my portfolio of the place i've worked is quite broad uh, all of them gave me a different experience so i had opportunity here actually in uh, in bangkok to work for enormous place called mario de marquis where we are sitting right now it's a fantastic hotel it's 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 a big hotel it's a amazing property and we have a lot of excellent people with passion uh, i mean thai in general is the country of thousand smiles at the end so obviously like you, you just moved here so quite difficult for you to express an opinion on like how different it is but uh, if you were to pick some differences in between hong kong and uh, bangkok in terms of lifestyle apart from the pace um maybe for me too too soon to say but uh-huh. but just the fa- just the pace is a little bit slower People say it's a cheaper, which it is compared to Hong Kong. And I'm not talking about the money you earn, but 
it is, but still it's not as cheap as it used to be like seven, ten years ago. It it got pricier. Yeah. So you moved uh, like you moved into a lot of different <coughs> countries by yourself uh, many times. How what do you think are the main challenges that you had when you moved? And did you become better at overcoming those challenges with age? Mm, I think I think you re- it's a repetitive process of kind of close the country you are at and open the new one in terms of you know you move somewhere you need you know what you need to do what you really need to bring with me and what you don't need <laughs> um uh disadvantage is that you cannot take much with you unless you spend a lot of money or they pay for your relocation package <clears throat> so you need to really think twice um moving a country if we omit that visa process and this like paperwork and it's actually not not that hard but because it's just so few of us 10 millions i think i still need to represent those 10 millions wherever uh-huh. i go many people forget that that you know once you meet certain nationality you look at the country like that yeah no yeah. of course of course and on top of that being european in asia i'm still representing as well the europeans overall so uh-huh. it's quite responsibility i think do, do you enjoy asia do you, do you see yourself living here uh... it's a huge continent with so many options yeah i i still like japan I would like that. to give it a go. I don't. I don't. I'm a bit scared because if if it goes wrong, then you know my old Japan dream would kind of crash, collapse, right? I think some things are just better to live them like this, like into an idealistic world. But also sometimes it's good to give it a shot, right? Yeah, you have to see to be able to go there. You have to find the right opportunity, right? Actually, I had the opportunity to live uh, to work in Japan. Oh yeah, and you decided not to go for it. I turned it down because there was a love involved, and it didn't it didn't work out. So yeah. There you go. You know, if it's meant to be, it's meant to be. You know, maybe one day you'll have the chance. You have had the chance to design a line of glassware. How did you come to it? Like, how did you decide to to do it? And what kind of glasses do you want to represent when you did it? Yeah, that that is one of my passion. Like, kind of like what I had always as a bartender. Before I applied for the hospitality school, I tried for the art school. I failed, but <laughs> I failed, but. I always like to design things. I like design, functional design especially. And then when I, you know, what kind of design you use in a, every day is a glass. So working with Proof, we recommend different glasses for different projects and different equipment and so on. So I had a kind of idea what is on the market and what is missing. So the idea came from there. And already in London, I, I designed a glass which is called a sipper which is kind of room temperature cocktail where you enhance the main spirit okay without dilution so i designed a glass specially for that uh with the wine guys so it has a bit of a shape of a wine carafe so it opens up the abv you know the heavy abv goes away the esters and milds up and that was my first kind of a job uh, with proof i've designed other glassware for hotel in korea and um gain the contacts and as well the process so i said okay i need to i need to do something more something bigger something meaningful and something what will help the others as well because i know what is missing so i made a line which is called a signature cut and the main purpose of it was the size the size of the glass i started with a small coupe we know that the small coupe is really missing on the market that martini when you have good size not bucket of vodka or gin <laughs> and you order the second one it's chilled all the way down so the size mattered to me durability mattered to me and handmade aspect mattered to me i'm czech the best 
sand for making glasses is in Czech Republic. The craft is there, the skills is there. So I would be fool if I wouldn't make Czech glassware, mm-hmm. right? So place where to make the glassware was decided. The three aspects were decided. So all handmade glasses, hand blown, hand cut, made in Czech Republic with a particular design. Obviously, it's a crystal glass because at that time I was in Hong Kong. And if I would make any glass and it's not handmade, it can be easily copied in China, even though this can be still copied in China. But that handmade aspect will be always with this glassware. Okay. That's crazy that you have to consider that eh, when you're developing something. Like, how easy is it to copy it in China? Yeah, yeah, of course. Nowadays, everything can be a copy. Ah, no 100%. problem. And only certain people see that glass quality. We are talking about like things like Baccarat. The glass itself, when you look against the light, it just has that lust. It, you, you, if you don't have a good, good quality sand... You can't do it, yeah. And, and the skill and, and the... Exactly. The know-how. Baccarat is Baccarat. So what's your uh, vision for the future, like in terms of your own career? Do you, th- you see yourself trying to fulfill all those dream cities that you haven't been to here in Asia? Or I think I am up for uh, challenges. I, I like what I do right now. And uh, I hope that I can contribute and learn something as well. And as I said, it's, a, it's a great to be here and work with the people I'm working with. So hopefully I can gain something from it. I can contribute. But in the same time, maybe I'm getting into the age when I would like to have, you know, maybe some furniture uh, to buy, (laughs) some design furniture. No more Ikea stuff. Uh, Yeah. I mean, we love Ikea, but uh, Jesus. Just at the end, I don't want to waste it. Yeah. yeah, I don't want to waste the product, you know, kind of like a place where I would settle down and and, and have a job which I like to do. And it's always like about hospitality, I believe. And yeah, maybe design something else, maybe. So last question that I usually ask everyone is if you could choose uh, your last drink, what would your last drink be? <clears throat> right, very f- philosophical. Um, if I look at the only drink itself and no other aspects around, um, I would probably give like a deep thought and enjoy the best cup of Japanese tea. Japanese tea, matcha? Yeah. No, it would be like some sort of gyokuro or like, yeah, like some sort of green tea. Yeah, I would enjoy every sip of it and think of everyone I have met and what I have done for who I have done things. And hopefully people will remember me in the positive notes. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, I'm sure they will. Oh, it was nice talking to you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. Thank you very much for having me. We hope you enjoyed our interview with Andre. You can find more content from us on YouTube and Instagram where we post our hashtag #howtoclassiccocktail videos where every Tuesday we show you how to make classic cocktails in less than a minute. We are unjiggered underscore media on Instagram and you can follow our accounts at mmariotti89 for Michele, Alex J. Murphy for myself and Adrian Bessa for Adrian. Thank you for listening.